All right, so let me get into this here. Let me, let me read the verse in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live in him. Just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live in him. I, got, I, got a, I read a story that I think paints a beautiful word picture for what I'm trying to, to achieve today. Uh, this is in a book called Rescue, Rescuing Ambition by Dave Harvey. He talks about uh, the greatest rescue mission of World War II. It was known as Operation Haylord. Is what he says. Late in that war, American bombers were sent on, danger, on a dangerous mission over southern Europe to cripple Nazi oil supplies. He writes, hundreds of crews in flying tin cans soared through storms of anti-aircraft shells. Many American pilots were forced to bail from their shot-up planes. The injured airmen drifted by parachute into occupied Yugoslavia, expecting to be captured or killed. Instead, on the ground, remarkable rescue teams were already in place. Serbian peasants tracked the path of floating flight crews. Their sole mission was to grab the flyboys and bring them to safety before the Nazis could get there. Risking their own lives, the peasants fed, fed and sheltered the downed soldiers. And these rescued men, get this here, they were now in friendly hands, but they were still in enemy territory. They were still behind the enemy line. They still needed to be, to be ultimately rescued, to escape. He goes on and says, amazingly, those Serbian peasants rescued every single American airman over 500 of them. Yet in order to travel to the evacuation site, the airmen had to spend weeks following the Serbian freedom fighters who alone knew the path to the evacuation site. The direction, the pace, the destination were all in the hands of the Serbians. The men had been saved from the enemy but they still weren't safe. They still had to follow. They still had to walk to, to gain their freedom. Now, if, if I did my job right there, I'm thinking, doesn't that paint a great picture of where we are in our walk with Christ? We have been saved. Praise God we've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But we're not safe. We're still not safe. While we live in this world, we're not safe. And we are continued to, we, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are called to continue following Christ as he, as he sets the pace, as he takes us to the destination, as he directs us. We are to follow Christ every day until we get to the other side. Just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, continue to live in him. The whole verse, let me, let me give you the whole verse here. The, it's Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7. So then, just as you receive Christ as Lord, so then, just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live in, in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thanks, thankfulness. And it begins with the words, so then, which makes me feel like I have to kind of establish where we've been already. Um, we've been going through the book of Colossians, and, and, and chapter 1 tells us a few things here. Live, live a life worthy of the Lord. 
Let us live to please him in every way. And it tells us in verse, verse 15 why. Because in him, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He, we owe this to him. He deserves that. In verse 18 says, he is the, the head of the body, the church. He should be first place in everything. Just because of who he is, Jesus is God. He should be first place in everything. So then... Just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live in him. And this is really the theme of the whole book of Colossians. That yes, we are saved. Now we need to be sanctified. Now we need to follow. Now we need to live a life worthy of Christ. So continue to live in him, being rooted in him, which implies depth. There should be depth. And let me ask you, right? right we, we, we who call ourselves Christians, are you... Do you have deep roots because of what Christ has done for you? You've grown in your walk with Christ, and now you're rooted in Christ, able to take on the storm, any storms that, that, that come your way. Are you rooted in Christ and, and, and being built up in him? So not only are we rooted in Christ, we've been built up in him. So rooted implies depth. Built up implies growth. And strengthened in the faith as you were taught made strong in our faith. So we're, so we're living by faith, not by sight. Is that true? Can you, can you identify with that? that you know, I, I'm, I'm a Christian. I've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So am I rooted? Am I being built up? Am I, am I strong in my faith? So that whatever the world throws at you, you can, you can handle the storms? And, and it, something that just, it breaks my heart. So many times I've, I've seen people who've been completely derailed in their faith because of something that happens in life. It, it blindsides them. They just they weren't expecting it. They weren't ready for it. And they get bitter at God. They get mad at God. They walk away from God. And, and it, it just breaks my heart every time I see this happen. I don't want this to happen to you. So are you getting strong in your faith? And, and, and one more thing this verse talks about is overflowing with thankfulness. Not only are we, we rooted in our faith and built up in our faith and strengthened in our faith, we're overflowing with thankfulness. We're grateful. Are you grateful for all that God has done for you? We, we should be living out our faith, continue to live in him. Uh, so these two verses here, grow, uh, they challenge us to grow downward, being rooted, uh, grow upward, being built up, grow inward by being strengthened, and grow outward by being, by being thankful. Um, and then it goes on, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. He's saying, watch out. Watch. You're still in enemy territory. There's danger here. And do we recognize the danger that, that surrounds us? We need to watch out that we, that we don't be taken captive, that, that we're not kidnapped or enslaved or, or become hostage to the lies of this world. <clears throat> He's hollow, empty, deceptive, whether it be intentionally, intentionally or unintentionally, um, these deceptive philosophies. And, and, and why would this happen? I, I believe part of the problem is because we're not satisfied in our walk with Christ. So, we're, so we want something else. And, and, the, and the world is ready to offer you something else. Christ plus you know, something, you know, these, we, these wicked philosophies. And philosophy in itself, i got to say this, philosophy in itself is not bad. Um, philosophy is actually, the word means the love of wisdom. 
And the Bible teaches us the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. And long before the Greeks came along with all their philosophers, you know, Socrates and, and Plato and all these different people, um, the Hebrews had, had, had the corner on wisdom. You've got, you got Ecclesiastes, which is the, the meaning of life right there, that wisdom. You've got the book of Job, which is wisdom and suffering. You've got Proverbs, which is practical wisdom. So long before the Greeks, you got the Word of God, which gives us wisdom. And, and we have been blessed with Christian, Christian philosophers. Now think of C.S. Lewis and, and Francis Schaeffer, and there, there's, there's many of them. They're, they're wonderful people, and, and they've helped us to shape our worldview by our, our belief in God, our philosophy about who God is. And this is incredibly important. But as this is happening, there are people with warped views on God who have given us warped philosophies. They have no, they, they completely removed God from wisdom. There is no fear of God. So worldly philosophy, it can take you captive. It can enslave you. It, it doesn't give you freedom. It gives you bondage. It's empty. It's not helpful. It has no value. It's deceptive. It depends on human tradition, on man, on finite, sinful man. And, and Paul is warning you, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by these, these, these fine-sounding arguments, these fancy words, these powerful speeches. It sounds good, but there's no value there. It's not helpful. In fact, it's enslaving. Don't be take, taken captive. And, and there's thousands of these philosophies out there. Today, my goal is to just emphasize six of them. Um, and, and I want to quickly go through these six. Um, but this is, this is my goal today. What are some of these deceptive philosophies that are out there? How have they influenced you? How have they influenced our culture today? I think 2,000 years ago, the Colossians had their own deceptive philosophies they had to worry about. Today, we have some, some deceptive philosophies that we need to be worried about. And the first one I want to begin with is evolution, Charles Darwin. Um, and I don't want to spend time here. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time here because I, I feel like uh, the church... Um, you know, we, we've dealt with this one. I, I think we've moved on from this one now. But to understand the damage that's been done by this, um, that, that evolution is, is presented to us as science. But it's not science. Evolution, um, it, it's a theory that cannot be proven. You know, if, if it's science, you take a theory, a hypothesis, and then you test it, and then you prove it, and, and then you have, you know, that's, that's how science is done. You cannot prove evolution. It's just somebody says, this is what I think. It's, it's more of a religion than it is a science. And, and, and in fact, I would tell you, it's, it's, it's been disproven. And, and the biggest, and, and I can, oh, I can, you got the Creation Museum, you got the, you got the Ark that's in, uh, uh, where, where is that, in Williamstown, Kentucky. Uh, have you been to the Ark? Uh, I like the Creation Museum more than I like the, the Ark. But I love the Ark. The Ark is awesome. I think if you've never been there, you've got to go to the Ark. And in the bottom of it, they sell fudge. It's really great. Um, I think it's fudge. Uh, but anyway, um, so, um, and, 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 and I'm going to teach a class this fall on... Um, Basically, creationism versus evolution. I'm going to teach that on Tuesday mornings to some high schoolers. You're welcome to come. But there's so much evidence. The most overwhelming evidence, DNA. DNA. That's the exclamation mark that evolution is a terrible philosophy. That's all it is. It's a terrible philosophy. And it's done incredible damage. It's taken so many people captive by this false religion. It, it undermines the word of God. It, it, just, just like Satan said to Eve, did, did God really say, yeah, this is what, what Satan has done to us. Did God really say he created the earth in six days? 
Well, yeah, that's what God said. You know, did God really say this? Did God really say that? And it's confused so many people that now we don't, did we come from God or did we come from monkeys? Are we create, creating the image of God or in the image of monkeys? Uh, did, is there a God or was there just a big bang? Are we descendants of Adam and Eve or from cavemen? And you got all these, it's confused a lot of people. I grew up going to Sunday school, hearing one thing, and going to, to public school and hearing something completely different. I didn't know what to do with that. Now we have lots and lots of answers, um, but that's, I don't want to get sidetracked here. My goal is not to talk about evolution. Uh, I, I seldom talk about evolution anymore because I feel like it's ran its course. But the damage has been done. And the damage is, 100 years ago, Few people questioned the Bible to be the Word of God. And today, few people believe the Bible is the Word of God. You see what's happened in the past hundred years because of this man-made, hollow, and deceptive philosophy. All right, that's one. Let me take you to another one. Another one, uh, Sigmund Freud, the father of psychology, I don't want to talk about too much on this one. I don't, I'm not good at this one. Um, but a few things I want to say, though. Uh, first of all, if you know anything about Sigmund Freud, he was a cocaine addict. He was, he was perverted. Um, he was a sick man. And yet the world exalts him as the father of psychology. And in most everything that he put out there has been disproven, has been uh, dismissed. Uh, yet he's still the father of psychology. And, and psychology in itself might not be a bad thing. It might offer a lot of good things. Um, I can think of a lot of bad things it offers. Um, I've had some bad experiences with it. Um, and I think there's a lot of bad to it. And that's what I want you to be mindful of. Um, and, and here's something that I have seen. I've, I've, I've witnessed this. And, and I just think this ought to get our attention. That today people boast about their therapist but they don't boast about God. In another way, put it, people boast about their therapist as they dismiss people of faith. You know, the, you got some kind of crutch, but they're fine. They, they just got a therapist. I'm like, what? That just doesn't make any sense to me. And, 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 and something that I'm passionate about, if you ever need counseling, and there are times in life that you need counseling, then I'm begging you, begging you, make sure it's a Christian counselor with a biblical worldview who's leading you in the ways of God and not in the ways of man. If, if, if you're going to somebody who does not have a Christian worldview, then what they're presenting is hollow and deceptive. It's man's opinion. It's based on the principles of this world. And I would tell you, I, I believe you'd be wasting your time, wasting your money, and possibly being deceived. All right, that's all I want to say about that one. But I, I felt like I wanted, I wanted to bring that one up. Next one I want to talk about is Alfred Kinsey. In, uh, in all that he's contributed to sex education, which has been a terrible nightmare. He's best known for writing a book, Sexual Behavior and the Human Male, in, in uh, 1948. And that was followed by another book in 1953, five years later, uh, six years later, uh, Sexual Behavior and the Human Female. Now, the way this, if you don't know anything about this guy, I'm glad. Uh, but this is what you need to know about this guy. Uh, the way he did his, his research, he went into prisons and he took sexual predators and he did all of his tests and all of his research using sexual predators and somehow published a book and said, this is normal. So everything we have bought into as normal 
has been presented to us by sexual predators. And they made a bronze statue of this guy, and they call him a scientist, and he's not. Remember, he, he, the, the things he's done with children, this guy should be in jail. He should have been in jail for being a child molester. This guy makes me sick. And his, his, his lab is at Indiana University. It was a, they built him a research center in Indiana University in 1947 called the Institute of, for Sex Research. It was paid for with your tax dollars, by the way. Um, the good news is last month it was defunded. Praise God for that. Um, but Kinsey took pornography and he called it science. He normalized what the Bible calls sin. By the way, he was a zoologist. I think that tells you everything you need to know right there. Um, this is a dangerous philosophy. He normalized casual sex and pornography and homosexuality. And, and, and his research has led to STDs and unwanted pregnancies and abortion on demand and no-fault divorce and broken families. And what I'm telling you, this is not of God. This is a hollow and deceptive philosophy that a lot of people have bought into. And my fear is a lot of Christians have bought into it. And, and, and the Bible says, flee from sexual immorality. Just a few more things on this here. The, the, to understand sex is a gift from God, but it's for a married man and a woman. The, Hebrews 13 says marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexual, sexual, sexually immoral. David Platt says there is not one instance in all of God's word where God advocates or celebrates sex outside of marriage, a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. Not one. You'll never find it in the Bible. The Bible clearly says flee from sexual immorality. And my question is today, is the church countering the, the culture or are we colluding with the culture? What are we doing here? Flee from sexual, sexual immorality. Sex comes with restrictions in the Bible yeah, I'm not going to go into all that right now. That, that's just another philosophy that way too many people have bought into and their lives have been destroyed by it. I'm just putting it out there. The one, okay, I'm going to go to the next one, four, which was the one I thought I was going to spend most of my time on uh, is secularism. Uh, over the past couple of years, I've studied this here and, and this is so of the devil. Uh, secularis, secularism is the removal of God from all things. And, and they used separation of church and state to sell this to us. Separation of church and state was originally, you know, Thomas Jefferson wrote that, to protect the church from the state. And now it's being used to protect the world from the church. They've used it so that now there is, there, you're not allowed to have God in the government. No God in the government. No God in education. No God in the public square. No God, Period. That's what they want because they see Christianity as the problem. The, the belief is that God is the problem. And, and I just want to challenge you on that. Really? Really? God is the problem? Is America better off or worse off because we removed God, God from everything? You know, back in the 1950s, they said the number one complaint in public school was what, what you know what it was? Children chewing bubble gum. Yeah, that was then. And now... I mean, the number one problem is school shootings. They removed God from everything. What did they think was going to happen? 
In, in Alan Turner, he, he calls this uh, Frankenstein. He says, thinking it our duty to espouse a principle that forces us to eliminate the Lord from all government and most of society, we have created a monster called secularism. This Frankenstein, which is now determined to destroy us, is an unnatural creation that should have never been fabricated in the first place. Do you understand we created something that's destroying us? Because the, 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 the sinful mind is hostile to God. They don't want God. Michael Heitz, he, he writes, Secularism is an attempt to domesticate the great lion of the tribe of Judah as a, a meek and mild ha house cat. It's what they're trying to do. They're trying to, they're trying to control God. They're, they're trying to remove God. And, and just to pursue this a little longer, I just want to ask, how, how has Christianity shaped Western civilization? Because I, I, you know, you, when, when, you, when you study history, you, you see Christianity spread from Jerusalem to Europe to America. And, and, and I would tell you, America is the great nation it is because of God. Because you had people pursuing God, people seeking God. Our model is God bless America. Our currency says, in God we trust. This nation was built on Christian principles, and that has affected everything from our justice system to our, to, to, uh, our, our liberty, our families, the way we, we use our money, um, the way that we look at authority, the way that we look at human life, it has affected everything. And you remove that, and what do you have? I believe if you, if you remove Christianity from America, America would probably be much like Yemen. Have you ever been there? Do we, do we understand what we're doing? Do we recognize what we're doing? Let me, let me go on to the fifth one here. Um, this, I didn't see this one coming. This, this, in my studies this week, it, it led me to this here. That in today, today, the number one reason why people, uh, why especially young people, are leaving Christianity, or, or young people don't want anything to do with Christianity, older people are leaving Christianity, is it's all because of this philosophy called tolerance. Tolerance, because Christians are intolerant. What do you think about that? This is the, this is the number one philosophy of the day. Christianity is intolerant. And I feel like we got to deal with this one. We, we, we got to think, think this one through. If you're anything like me, if somebody calls you intolerant, I don't want to be called intolerant. I don't want people to think that I'm intolerant. But, but what do they mean when they call you intolerant? And what they mean is you stand for something. And that's what they don't like that you recognize there is such a thing as right and wrong. And I think it's becoming clearer and clearer all the time in our world that there are many things going on in this world that are just flat out wrong. And see, you as a Christian, as a, as a man of God, as a woman of God, you stand up and you, you, you speak up about that. And now you're accused of being intolerant. You understand what they're doing? They're, they're calling you intolerant to control you and to shut you up. They don't want to hear your intolerance. And, and to also see that it's, it's clearly one-sided because when you say something is wrong, what do they do? They, they say what you're doing is wrong. You're not allowed to say something's wrong. Only they can call something wrong. They call you intolerant. They, they call you wrong. But you're not allowed to say that anything's wrong. This is a very dangerous and deceptive philosophy. I was recently told that the reason young people don't come to, the reason a lot of young people don't want to come to church is because the church is too political. 
And I had to think that one through. Um, and, and, and it scares me. I know there's a line someplace, and I know I've probably been guilty of crossing that line, and, and don't amen on that one or anything. But, uh, the, the, but the reason that the church has to speak up is because politics is about policies, and policies affect millions and millions of people. How dare we not speak up? We've got to speak up. We've got to, to, we've got to communicate what the Word of God is. If we care about people at all, we've got to speak the Word of God. And that's why we are accused of being too, too political. Um, I want you to understand a couple things. Okay, one thing is, um, you know, they, they, they use the fact that God is love to try to shut us up. You know, you're not allowed to say anything's wrong or anybody is wrong because God is a God of love. And I can't argue with that. God is a God of love. But he's also a holy God and a just God. And he's called you to be a holy people. We are called to be a holy people. And what you need to understand about this is that tolerance is the exact opposite of repentance. And we are not called to be tolerant. We are called to be repentant. This world is all about tolerance. Christianity is all about repentance. Remember the Asbury Revival just a month or two ago. Um, it, it, the Asbury Revival began with a movement of repentance. And people experienced the presence of God because they were repentant, not because they were tolerant. If we want to experience the presence of God, we must be a repentant people. Tolerance, tolerance says you don't need to change anything. God loves you just as you are. The gospel says you are a sinner. And you need to repent. You need to change and, and the reason we speak up is because we're, it's not because we're intolerant, it's because we love you and we care about your salvation because we understand there is, we, we are eternal beings and there's such a place as hell and we have to speak up because we don't want you to go there. That's not being intolerant, that's actually being loving. Christianity teaches us to come as we are but also to acknowledge who we are and then to allow Christ to transform us. Allow Christ to transform us. This is a gift from God to, to, for him to make us into a new creation. Not somebody who's a sinner, but somebody who's a, who's a saint, somebody who's holy. Repentance is a change of mind. So we don't think the way we used to think. It's a change of heart. So we don't desire what we used to desire. It's a change of behavior. So we don't do what we used to do. Tolerance is a dangerous and deceptive philosophy. It's actually an attack on the gospel. One more that I want to share with you before I get out of here is, um, and I didn't know how to write this down. This self, self is what I wrote. Our, our selfishness, our radical individualism. The toxic individualism, where it, a world where it's all about you. It's all about me. It's a me generation. The me generation. It's my way or the highway. If it feels good, do it. I did it my way, which in my studies this week, I, I found out something here. Frank Sinatra, who's famous for, I did it my way, you know, uh, uh, found out that he was married four times and he attempted suicide twice. How did his way work out for him? Understand he was, he was a, a pretty depressed man, a popular, famous, rich but depressed. And I would tell you, probably because he was trying to do it his way, doing it his way. I read this, the symptoms of the me generation. They can't return a, shop, shopping, a shopping cart back to the rack. 
It's, it's, it's what that does. You know? uh, because it's all about me. I don't have to return the shopping cart. It, it leads to you know, road rage. It leads to murder in Chicago. In Louisville, the murder rate is, is skyrocketing. An abundance of divorce, backstabbing, and, and jockeying for position. All these different things that come with this me generation. Uh, uh, um, uh, what was that? The, the, Joshua McNall, he says this. He says, in the end, the most obvious problem with radical individual, individualism is how a stress on my rights and my preferences overshadow my responsibility for the common good. This freedom is entirely negative. Everybody who's fighting for their rights, their privileges, they're forgetting about their responsibility, and we all suffer as a result. Today, selfishness, selfishness has always been around. It's nothing new, right? It's not new to this generation. The, the thing that's new is now it's openly celebrated. We live in a culture now that, that promotes it. Instead of restraining it, as a, a society should do, it should restrain selfishness. What, what does the Bible say about selfishness? The Bible says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. It says in Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Let, let me just ask you. I got more to say on this here, but just let, let me ask you here. We, everybody in this room, most everybody in this room, you call yourself a Christian, I hope. You know what Jesus Christ has done for you, I hope. We love Jesus Christ. We embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. How much have you been influenced by this, this mentality, by this philosophy? Are you living for Jesus Christ or are you living for yourself? Are you living for yourself? Let, let, me, let me point out some things. If you, if you go back to secularism, this builds on this. Um, the secularist, secularist, I can't say that word, believes, first of all, there is, they believe there's no God. They don't want anything to do with God. Um, they believe there's no eternity. They, they embrace Charles Darwin, and they believe, you know, we've all uh, evolved. Therefore, it's the survival of the fittest, right? We're, we're basically mere animals. Um, they believe man's purpose is self-actualization. Man, I have a hard time with these words. Um, the highest good is individual freedom and happiness. That's, that's what they're living for. Individual freedom and happiness. It's all about me. Religion seems restrictive. Eternal authority is rejected. All of this leads to narcissism. Self-centeredness. You are your own higher power, not God. You make the rules, not God. You deny yourself nothing. There is no self-discipline. It leads to addictions. Addictions is the number one reason for, for child abuse. Um, you, you buy in, there's no God, there's no higher power. It's just you. Whatever is good for you is what you do, which is usually bad for everybody around you. Everybody suffers because of that mentality that it's all about you. What, what Joshua McNall say, it's all about your rights, your preferences, and it all overshadows your responsibilities. That is a huge problem in our world today. All right, so that's just, I just gave you six. I just gave you six. There's thousands of these I could go with, uh, but those six were the ones I wanted to highlight. And we go on, we go, go back to where we began in Colossians 2, verse 6. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. 
rooted and built up in him, strengthened in, in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get taken captive by these hollow and deceptive philosophies. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Continue living for Jesus Christ. Continue following Jesus Christ, walking with Jesus Christ. And in verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. You have all you need in Christ Jesus. We, we've been given fullness. We have been made com complete. Be satisfied with what he's given you. You don't need anything else. Don't be deceived. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You don't need Jesus and evolution. You don't need Jesus and this or that or that. You need Jesus. You need to keep your eyes on Jesus. Stop buying into these hollow and deceptive philosophies. In Christ, we possess the fullness of Christ. Christ showed us the ultimate love. He conquered the ultimate enemy. Christ sets at the ultimate place of power. We have all we need in Christ Jesus. And, and a problem in America, do I have time? I'm out of time. Uh, but a problem in America, I was, I was, uh, my, my son Atticus kind of pointed this out to me. Um, they do these three-thirds groups. You heard about the three-thirds groups. And, and, um, and I've recently bought into them. They've been telling me this for years, and I recently bought into it. Um, that I, I get it now. I understand. But I asked Atticus, how come it doesn't work in America? How come these groups are, are thriving in Africa? That's where Atticus is right now. But it's not working in America. And his answer to me was, because in America, we want knowledge. We thirst for knowledge. And that sounds like a good thing, but, what, but we're discontent because you've heard the story of the prodigal son already. I mean, I can't teach you the Good Samaritan story in a different way. You, it is what it is, and you've heard it all your life. There's nothing new about it. So the typical American is, is not content, is dissatisfied. They want something new. So we embrace these new philosophies, these, these new, you know, what, whatever, there's all this new stuff. He says the reason it's working in, in Africa is because people don't go looking for new information. They go looking for something new to obey. What am I not doing that I need to be doing? That's a mentality that we need to have. When we study the Bible, what do I need to obey? Stop looking for new information. Start looking for new things to be obedient to. And, and where am I at? I don't know where I'm at now. Um, so... so um, be grateful. This is the last point here. Last point, but i got three points about this last point. Uh, be grateful. Overflowing with thankfulness is what it says in, in Colossians 2, verse 7. Are you overflowing with thankfulness? Be grateful that we have been made pure by Christ. He's taken our sins away. In, in Colossians 2, verse 11, in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circum circumcision done by Christ. He's removed the old sinful nature having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in power in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism, uh, through our obedience and baptism, our sins are washed away. We are transformed. We are changed. We are, we, are, we are a new creation. Who I was has been changed. Who I, what I used to do has been changed. What I used to be has been changed. What I used to think has been changed. By God's love and God's power, he did not tolerate me. He transformed me. So now I'm rooted in Christ. Now I will not be deceived by these hollow philosophies. And secondly, be grateful for being pardoned by Christ. It goes on verse 13. When you were dead in your sins, in the, circum in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us 
all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. He nailed it. That's great. He nailed it. To the, so anyway, so the, 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 what, what that our sins, all of our sins would be put on a list and, and it would be put next to our prison cell or if we, if we are being, ex, uh, if we are being uh, killed, crucified for our sins, it, it would be put on the cross with us. And Jesus took that list. He took the list of your sins and he put it on his cross and he died so you would be pardoned. So all the, all the crimes you committed against God he paid for it. Be grateful. He, he pardoned us from our sins. And be grateful for the power that we have in Christ Jesus. This is another major theme in, in Colossians here, in Colossians 2, that he's head over every power and authority is what it says in Colossians 2.10, that, that we've been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God. And in verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2 is all about power. The power of hollow and deceptive philosophies, but better yet, the power of Christ to save you from those, those hollow and deceptive philosophies. The, the power of Christ to give you new life. The power of Christ to disarm those who are trying to take you captive. In, in, in Romans times, when, um, in old times, when, when, when an army was captured, it was paraded through the streets, it was exposed, it was disarmed, it was, it was shamed. And that's what Christ does with Satan, who has tried to harm you, who has tried to hurt you. He, he disarmed him. He exposed him. He's made a spectacle of him. You know what that means? It means we don't have to take Satan's stuff anymore. We don't live in defeat anymore. We are not victims. We are victorious through Christ. If we keep trusting Christ, if we keep following Christ, if we continue to live in him is what the Bible tells us. Jesus saves us. He forgives us. He cancels the written code, all the laws that, that you've broken, all the laws that demand justice, all the laws that demand your life. He's canceled that written code. He's disarmed all the authorities that have tried to take you captive. Keep walking with him. Keep growing in him. Stay rooted in him and be grateful for all that he's done for you. The purity that he's given you, the pardon that he's given you, and the power that he's given you through Christ Jesus. We serve a wonderful God. He has saved us. But we're not safe yet. We're not safe. We've got to keep following Christ.